We like to think of ourselves as sort of like a blank canvas and we just tell people like, hey, it sounds like you need a lot of capital. People can't figure out exactly what you need it for. It's too complicated, it's too weird. Come to us with, with anything you want and there's gonna be a pool of capital there for you. Um, and we, it's a really fun job because we you know, look at things all over the world in weird kind of asset classes. Um, and it's usually something where we often say that what we do is usually unpriced, not mispriced. It's usually something no one's ever, ever even done before. Um, and so, so we just have a blast kind of learning a lot um, through that. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. This week, I chat with Ali Hamed, partner at CoVenture. Ali represents the next generation of VCs in New York, and I think it's safe to say that we're in very good hands. Since his college days, he's been building an incredible network and unsurprisingly has built a super impressive business. What's unique about CoVenture's model is that they've found an interesting synergy between debt financing and venture capital. In addition to making venture investments, Ollie and his team provide balance sheet capital to innovative companies that are financing new asset classes. If you're interested in the business models of venture capital, debt, or general finance, I think you'll find this conversation to be very educational. I certainly did. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Fire on Marketing. Fire on Marketing is a full-service marketing firm providing high-quality, cost-effective solutions. They support companies in developing websites, creating content, email marketing, optimizing SEO, and managing ad campaigns on social media, Google, and beyond. What's unique about their approach is that they connect all of the marketing activities together to create a unified conversion loop and generate higher yield for clients. If you're interested in learning more, visit fireonmarketing.com. Ollie, thanks for being here today, man. Thanks for having me. I'm flattered to be on. Uh, I feel like this is a good excuse to uh, catch up generally. Yeah, we're way overdue. It's been years. I know. I do, I do definitely remember writing you like these cold emails as an undergrad because you were like one of these like hotshot New York tech guys. They're like, oh my gosh, like, I don't want to be like you one day. So it, it's very cool and flattering to be able to have this conversation with you now. That's awesome. I don't remember those emails. But only like, I do get a lot of them, as you all do. You <laughs> probably get a lot of emails like that now. Um, you can't reason, keep track of it. I find that um, the ones that get the best responses are the one with, ones with the most specific asks. Like the, um, how do I get a job in venture capital? Email is always like a very hard one. The, hey, do you know anyone at this company? Because I like it for these, this reason and I'd like to work there is an easy one to help with. Um, so maybe that was my mistake. I needed to make my asks more narrow as the... Uh, the young cold emailer. Yeah, you know, I what I did is I, I still get a lot of the generic, general questions. I started producing content to answer the most common questions, and then I send people a link. That, that's so genius. I have, I have like an hour video or half hour video on my po- on my blog, which is like how to get the job in VC because everyone asks that, and it's ten slides on how you get the job in VC, and I just forward the links. I want to help everybody, but. You can't possibly do 10 hours of meet and great calls a day and get anything done. It's impossible. That's right. That's right. The, the, um, it's funny because I often tell people, I can tell you how to get a job in VC three years from now. You know, and it, it's a journey. Um, yeah. you know, and, and so you know, it's, uh, when you find a silver bullet answer, let me know. Yeah, I don't think there is one. I think it's an unfortunate reality. But hopefully you can, you know, when you, I try to respond to everybody, hopefully there's a nice tone to it, even if it's, Hey, I can't jump on a call at the moment. Um, one of the negative kind of challenges of our business, having this imbalance in the number of people who want the job versus number of jobs available. That's right. Well, I'm still here trying to hang out with you. So I think you're doing a good job. <laughs> awesome. I'm glad you're on. Do you want to start off by just giving, you know, just a brief background? You no, know, I know you've, you haven't had many legs of your career because you, you kind of beat the pack and skipped all the way to home base very quickly. But do you want to give a little overview? Sure. You know, so, I mean, growing up, I, my, I feel like my 16-year-old self would be really disappointed by how nerdy my 29-year-old self became. Um, you know, so I grew up playing baseball. I went to Cornell to play baseball. Um, and while I was there, I just kind of got hooked on startups and I, and I started one. Um, and it didn't work out, but I, I caught the bug and, and, and I was sort of addicted. And I was doing consulting. And by doing consulting, I mean doing any odd job that I could convince anyone to pay, uh, pay me to do. Um, it was sort of this goofy process where I'd run around to, to events kind of by myself, which is always an odd thing to do. 
like look at my phone and act like I was busy doing something until someone was willing to talk to me and I'd ask them what they did. And as soon as they told me what they did, I'd be like, oh, that's amazing. That's exactly what I do. And I, I think I could help you with that. And so, you know, I'd, I'd do these random projects, building apps or helping people set up offices in, in cities they didn't know well. And, um, and after that, I, uh, I finally saved up a tiny amount of money where I wanted to start doing angel investments. Um, and those angel investments uh, wouldn't have been very productive because if I went up to someone like you, who is well known in the New York tech scene, and you were investing in this hotshot company, I said, hey, my name's Ali. It's really nice to meet you. I have this wonderful experience at, at screwing up a startup and I'm you know, a junior in college. You should let me into this hot deal. I feel like that'd be like a pretty poor pitch. Um, and so instead, what we started doing was building software for equity in founders who are non-technical because we knew how to build product and a lot of people didn't. And, um, and that was sort of our, our kickoff. That, that was like the original, original co-venture. And, and uh, we started it my senior year. Um, and you know, I always joke, I go back to college reunions and stuff and people ask me what's new. And there's nothing, you know, I have the same job. I'm with the same girl. Um, I live in the same apartment. I I feel like I've had this incredibly uh, monolithic life (laughs) since school. Yeah, but that's because you skipped all of the failures and confusion along the way and went right to the win. I'm sure the, you found the right lady from the sound of it. You just got married. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, still still married three months later. So, so, you know, thrilled (laughs) for that. 100% success ratio so far. That's right. That's right. And yeah, definitely. I'm sure I'll, I'm sure I'll get everything right from this point forward. That's amazing. No, look, I think it's a great background. I, th- I think it'd be helpful for everyone listening to get a little bit of a, a headline about CoVenture. Would you, would you do an overview of the firm? What you guys do? Yeah, sure. So, you know, um, at CoVenture, um, you know, I guess even more broadly in, in my background, I help manage two different firms. Um, CoVenture, which provides credit to startups, and we do it out of two different um, types of pools of capital. Uh, you know, we do asset back credit. Um, asset back credit doesn't mean that we do venture debt loans. It doesn't mean we do corporate loans. A startup doesn't come to us and say, Hey, we raised $20 million from index. Can you give us another $10 million to, to extend runway? Instead, what it means is it's a technology startup that's originating some sort of loan or asset or come up with some sort of idea. And we provide the debt financing behind them. So an example that might um, be, you know, pretty well known is, you know, a company called ClearCo finances a bunch of e-commerce businesses. Um, we were early and continue to be early providers of capital to them so they can finance those assets. Um, you know, produce pay would be another. Produce pay finances uh, Latin American farmers who grow produce. We don't lend money to produce pay. What we do is we provide them the capital they use to provide financing to those farmers. Um, you know, and so we like all kinds of you know, esoteric or novel or interesting assets, and we provide the debt financing behind those. Um, and then we have another um, strategy where we, it's more of a go anywhere strategy, special situations, complicated ideas, structured preferred equity. You know, I'd say venture capital generally has done a good job of figuring out what to back, but it's pretty unsophisticated in terms of how to back it. And we, you know, consider ourselves a small little team that can go from a 10, $25 million check up to a $300 million check and give you any kind of capital you need when it doesn't, when it, when it doesn't fall right down the middle of normal venture capital. Um, right. But the $300 million check is not, when people hear that, it's not a, Series E traditional growth check, you're giving a pool of capital they can draw on. It's more like a tool than it is uh, an investment in the company. That's right. The, the really boring version uh, of it is called it's a uh, delay draw asset back facility. And so what go. happens is the technology <laughs> company will do a bunch of stuff. They'll, they'll go make a loan and, and, and sell it into an SPV or they'll provide an advance or they'll find an asset. And if the technology company is like a holding company or like the C Corp, they set up a subsidiary, which is an SPV. And they put the assets in the SPV and then we provide the debt financing to that. However, you know, we do have pools of capital where we can go provide a lot of capital to the corporate and allow them to do something. Now, it won't be we're just using it for general purposes. Usually they're making an acquisition or they're doing a roll up of some sort of assets. So we like to think of ourselves as sort of like a blank canvas. And we just tell people like, hey, it sounds like you need a lot of capital. People can't figure out exactly what you need it for. It's too complicated. It's too weird. Come to us with, with anything you want. And there's going to be a pool of capital there for you. Um, and we, it's a really fun job because we you know, look at things all over the world in weird kind of asset classes. Um, and it's usually something where we often say that what we do is usually unpriced, not mispriced. It's usually something no one's ever, ever even done before. Um, and so, so we just have a blast kind of learning a lot um, through that. So is it, but there are p- other firms that do this. Like we're investors in EasyKnock. EasyKnock uh, essentially has made a very humane version of like a reverse mortgage product. Mm-hmm. Um, they're helping people get assets and, and liquidity out of their homes. 
um, if they have financial need for many, their homes or their single most significant asset in general. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, they needed a ton of capital that wasn't actually an equity investment. It wasn't part of their operations. It wasn't used for their company. It was used to transact. Right, another company we're involved with this properly does has a similar type mm-hmm. of dimension to it. Those, I, the the people I've seen come up and do those checks are the big banks. I've seen hedge funds and um, one of the BlackRock mm-hmm. or Blackstone. I was getting confused. Goldman, those are the players in there. Is that who you're bumping up against, or who else do you see in the space? Well, so so we've seen everybody, um, but I think what I would um, encourage you to think about is what is the actual asset in a reverse mortgage? Like reverse mortgages are newly humane. But they're not new. You know, reverse mortgages right. are generally, you know, the type of asset where somebody who's elderly, you know, might need some capital or their family needs some capital. The only asset they have is liquid. So let's make them a loan, you know, against the asset. And it's, and it's pretty expensive or punitive. And there's weird things about how, you, you know, what happens to the asset after. Um, sadly, you're rooting kind of against the person in many cases. At the end of the day, though, the asset you're secured by is a house. Residential real estate is not a new asset class. Um, however, you know, in our case, perishable produce is. There's no such thing as perishable, like perishable produce as an asset class. And for really good reasons, if you lend against perishable produce, it goes bad. Um, but produce pay has figured out all these bells and whistles um, that actually make it a financeable institutional asset class altogether. And what mm. ends up happening, is, or, or Amazon third-party sellers is another. Amazon third-party selling wasn't a thing you know, in 2011 or 12. And so it's just a brand new asset class. So you couldn't have even institutionalized it by then. And a lot of these cheaper sources of capital, whether it's a bank or an insurance company, we'll come back to groups like you know BlackRock, Blackstone, you know, et cetera, in a moment. You know, part of what they're trying to do is they're trying to buy assets with good risk rewards. Part of what they're trying to do is also buy assets that fit within the regulatory framework that they live under. You know, an insurance company has capital charge issues. You you know, pay your premium, and if something happened to your house, the insurance company better give you the money. And so there's all these rules about what they can put their money into to make sure they have the capital. That way, when something happens, you know it's there. And so, but, but you know, kind of like a lot of rules and regulations, there's inflexibility. And one of the uh, uh, general assumptions that uh, financial regulations often make is that the longer the asset class has been around, the safer it is. There's more track record. You know, it turns out people have been living in homes for a really long time. So it's not like residential mm-hmm. real estate is like a new asset type. Um, and right. so for, for those types of assets, you actually can get them rated and put them into an insurance company. A regulator will look at a bank and consider it tier one capital. So you can use depository capital. Something like perishable produce or an Amazon seller, because it hasn't been around long enough, it's very hard for it to get rated and then sell into the ABS markets where there's a lot of these hedge funds or securitizations that can happen to bring down cost of capital. It's very hard to bring that into banks. Um, it'll happen, but often it takes time. So what we find is that we're not always um, efficient for something like a reverse mortgage asset, as an example. And by the way, a long duration asset has to be fairly low yielding. Otherwise, the interest would eat into the entire um, you know, margin that you're paying. But what we often tell people is send us everything because what we found is the technology world generally wouldn't be able to give you, you know, even within Blackstone, how Blackstone works. Should you go to BAM? Should you go to BSOFT? Should you go to GSO? Should you go to TACOPS? Should you go to the real estate fund? Where does GSO and, and, and TACOPS overlap? Like, We'll teach everyone where they should go, even if it's not for us. So we just tell people, bring us everything, and then we'll tell you where to route it. And so what I'm hearing from you, which is very interesting, is you're specializing in lending against not risky assets, but not easily underwritable assets because they're new. What what we're often looking for is an asset type that feels brand new, exactly right, where we don't think it's riskier, we just think it's novel. But what we can actually do is we can say, well, what does this remind us of? Amazon third-party sellers is a really easy one. It's an Amazon third-party seller. What does that mean? What if Amazon shuts them down? All these... At the end of the day, these are small businesses. Uh, they sell stuff online and they have EBITDA if they're any good. And we lend, you know, and in normal direct lending, like in corporate buyouts, you do all these really big loans where there's like an equity sponsor, like a private equity fund. They put in $100 million. The lender puts in $200 million. And the two things you use to underwrite those deals are a loan to value. The lender puts in 200 to $300 million. It's a 67, you know, 66% loan to value. Um, and the debt to income is basically the amount of EBITDA that that company is generating um, compared to the debt that's outstanding. So if the private equity fund you know, bought that deal for you know, 10 times EBITDA. So you know, uh, they bought it for $300 million. It was earning $30 million of EBITDA. 
and there's $200 million of debt there, um, you know, it's like kind of an eight-ish debt to income. That's pretty wide. Um, and what they're relying on is the loan to value. In the Amazon ecosystem, because companies are generally newer and they're bought by, for lower multiples for all these different reasons that we can talk about later, you can provide higher LTV financing, but you're still kind of doing the same thing. You're just lending money secured against EBITDA using the debt to income, uh, debt to income covenant. So it sounds funky. It sounds weird. At the end of the day, we try to take away all the noise and figure out like, what is this thing actually? Right. You're good at abstraction, distilling it down to what it really is. And speed. You know, I mean, we'll, we've written, I think even a couple of weeks ago, we, we, we wrote an $80 million check within 24 days of meeting the company. Um, you mm. know, and so we can move really fast, which is also rare for, you know, uh, a more, um, regulated institution perhaps and when you're um l- let me get, get a sense here so i know you guys are writing some pretty big checks and running a, a decent bit of capital here what's the what bucket do you fit into for lps are you more an alternative asset and they're trying to think of you and looking for, you know looking to underwrite you with some 25 percent plus irr or are you are you more bucketed with the debt players where you'll see lower returns. How do you fit within that schema as people kind of get to this? Because it sounds kind of like cutting edge, venture maybe riskier, at least optically, but it's a, it's a credit product, which is different. Yeah. So, so, so if we had our druthers, people would put us in their asset back bucket. You know, if we think about walking up the risk spectrum, and, and one of the things, you know, we haven't gotten to is we also do venture capital. And, and, and mm-hmm. one of the things We're I don't think enough venture capitalists do is really just think about pricing and, and what kind of risk should they be taking and why are the IRRs or targeting make sense. And, and I think one of the things that credit has taught us is really how to, where to sit and how to think about where you sit in the kind of risk spectrum. So, you know, there's treasuries and then there's like high yield uh, or excuse me, like, you know, um, uh, investment grade. And then there's like high yield. And then you start getting into stuff that's a little more alternative. You get to private asset back, which might be, you know, seven, eight, nine percent type net returns. You have things like direct lending, which by the way, are like mid single digits, but levered to high single digits or low double digits, maybe high single digits net of defaults. And then you have things um, that are more like esoteric, weird types of asset back credit, kind of where people put us in like the low double digits net back to investors range. And then you have private equity, um, which ends up saying that it's going to earn you a mid teens net return and usually ends up getting you a high, you know, a low double digits net return. And by the way, that's like on an IRR basis and there's a lot of cash drag and, and whatever it might be. Um, but, right. but the IRR seem great. Um, and then you have, um, you know, growth equity, which is high teens. And you have venture capital, which is low 20s, allegedly. Um, and so, you know, and, and then a lot of people will put us in their absolute return bucket, which is a, we want an uncorrelated asset type. You know, and we think that perishable produce and Amazon third-party sellers might be, you know, different types of risks. I'm just using those because, you know, I've already talked about them. Um, mm-hmm. And so they like that we have this diversified income stream, um, you know, that, that's sort of like an absolute return type profile. So my hunch is we tell people to put us in their asset back bucket and they nod and they smile. And then they go back to their investment committees and they say, well, they're kind of asset back because even if the technology startup were to go BK, they're secured by the assets. The assets are self-liquidating and there's a loss coverage ratio and all these other credit metrics that they're using. But they're earning the same returns as a private equity fund. So maybe we don't think it's as unrisky as or, or they're trying to. Um, you know, so maybe it's not as risky as asset or it's riskier than asset back, but it's certainly maybe not as risky as private equity. Um, and so I think they try to kind of triangle us into those. And that's all my own assumption. I mean, I'm sure every single firm and allocator right. has their own way of thinking about it. And, you know, what we hope to get may or may not be what we get. So we just have to be careful about, um, you know, wh- wh- where we just view ourselves and taking a, a rational approach to the market. So psychologically, when you're going to deploy a product like this, especially on the credit side, I think the mindset is pretty different from the venture capital side of the house, which I know you're in as well, and we'll talk about in a minute. Is the goal on every deal to hit it out of the park? Or is the goal to consistently hit a yield kind of in the you know, teens zone that you're targeting and show consistency? So um, maybe putting on my more talking about the asset class side of the house, I would say most lenders are often trying to figure out how do they create the most absolute dollars of alpha or absolute dollars of alpha type income, not the highest IRRs. And if you think like, because if I wanted, or if any credit manager wanted the highest possible IRR possible, um, they would just make the fund really small. 
the reality is it doesn't serve a lot of needs. And, and by the way, I have, LP, you know, I have LPs, I'm sure everyone else has LPs who want to put a lot of capital at work and they'd be frustrated. Mm-hmm. They say, Hey, look, you know, it's really great that you, you know, actually even let's talk about e-commerce and a- a compare advertising to it, right? If you went to an e-commerce company and they told you their CAC to LTV was like 10, you know, they're, they were earning $10 for every $1 they put in. You say, great, spend more. I don't want that high of a return. I want you to create more income, not, um, more like your, your ratio is already good enough. Like you're not impressing me anymore that this can't scale. And one of the hardest things to do in early stage investing with direct to consumer businesses is figure out like, can this strategy that's earning a lot right now, um, continue to earn more at scale? I think a lot of credit investors say, what is the most capital I can put outstanding where I'm still generating some excess return relative to similar risks in my asset class? Um, and when people talk about credit, they talk about things like, well, a 10% return, 11% return, a 9%. And it sounds like you're talking about 100 basis points. The reality is you're talking about 10% of your total return. You know, one of the things that I think is really goofy about venture and credit is venture gets such a hard time for excess valuations because people are really bad at comparing numerators to denominators. And it turns out like Americans are really bad at fractions. Like those denominators sound like small numbers, but they actually have crazy um, impacts on like the vector that you're on. And so I would say that the average credit investor, more often than the old school venture investor, although that's changing with firms like Tiger and some of these others, is to generate the most absolute dollars of income that exceed the benchmark for their asset class. And if they can earn a 18 on $100 million of capital or a 14 on a billion dollars of capital, it might make more sense to earn the 14. So interesting, but I agree with you. I think most people are solving for that. And that's the paradigm that leads to a lot of the venture guys. And again, we'll flip over that in a second. Over-raising. Oh, you know, overfunding a strategy. They find a mousetrap that has a great yield. Then they keep raising as much as they can until they kind of asymptotically approach the market low. Uh, and as long as they can hit that in a stable way, that might optimize for total payout for them versus maximizing the return for their investors. So I, it's, I, it's a sign of misalignment to a certain extent. So, so I'll take um, another point of view. I think okay. some funds are under-raising. So if I, let's imagine um, I was a fully altruistic individual. Um, I had no incentive of making money for myself. And I had one LP and that one LP was the best nonprofit of all time. They didn't spend any money on administration. All the money went to a good cause. Let's assume that we all universally agree on what that cause is. What would my job be uh, for them? To make as much money as I possibly could. And if I sat there and I said, hey, I have a $100 million venture fund and it's 10Xing every time I raise my fund, um, and the, the LP said, well, gosh, you know, we have a billion dollars and we, you t- keep taking a hundred and we're so happy for everybody because it's helping the kids or it's helping whatever cause we're doing. Do you mind taking 200? And I said, no, no, I can't take 200 because I'd only 8x my fund. They'd be like, well, that's great. We'd earn $1.6 billion back instead of a billion dollars back. They'd be like, well, that's okay. Just find other people. They say, well, we can't. You know, you're the only one that can earn that kind of return. In fact, I would cause that me being um, almost like uh, putting my own interests ahead of their interest. Lifestyle. I like that they love me. I like that can I, I can trot out these ridiculous returns. I don't have to fundraise. But um, I just think it's not one or the other. Like the job mm-hmm. of an allocator is to align themselves. As much. Tiger might be actually mm-hmm. doing the best thing for their LPs. They might say, what, what else are you going to do in the market? It's either us or a bunch of garbage. And, um, and so you should actually, we should actually set up the vehicle for you where we can make as many dollars above what you should be making for this risk as possible even if it means lowering the cost of capital for our asset type. So maybe, um, maybe intentionally provocative, but I don't think it's as obvious as saying raising money, more money is bad. No, I, I think you actually make a good financial economic argument. The challenge is it's usually that there's a curve to that. And a lot of people, when they raise from 100 to 200 million, they don't 8X it. Mm-hmm. They go from 10Xing to 2Xing. Right. And they, they're destroying... Uh, you know, total absolute dollars delivered. I, I completely agree with that. Um, you know, and, and one of the first things that was ever told to us when we built our firm, which I thought was kind of a goofy line, but, but really resonates is, you know, running a, a billion dollar AUM firm is a great business to be in unless you raised a, uh, used to run a $6 billion AUM firm. It's really hard to go backwards. You know, yeah. I think um, it, it's hard for momentum. It's hard for the team culture. It takes layoffs it, or not layoffs, just pay cuts. And, um, and, and individuals, employees, people at your firm want forward progress. So I think I, I, I appreciate and resonate with the um, concern of growing too fast. What I don't resonate with is no incremental growth. 
And I often find that a lot of firms that are, are not run by their founders anymore are often incentivized to just do whatever the founder would have done. You know, firms like Andreessen Horowitz or some of these others, part of the reason they're so entrepreneurial and they're evolving first rounds and other is because they're still run by their founder. And like people follow Mark and Ben to like the dark night because they're the founders. I think mm-hmm. it's going to be really challenging. And every firm has this, that when the founders leave the mission, and by the way, this is true for companies too. The mission is to do whatever the founder would have done, especially if the founder wasn't kicked out. The founder was just, you know, um, sunsetted or, or retired. And so, you know, I, I think, um, it's just complicated. And I agree with your point where it's, it's not about growing 20% each year or 50. A lot of firms grow 10x or 2x each year. And that's when it gets really tricky. Okay. So you said you want everyone with an asset-backed credit need to call you and you'll help route them. So if you're listening to this, call them. Okay, here we go. What are you actually looking for? When someone calls you, how do you evaluate to determine whether or not it's a fit or not? Yeah. So, so when we're looking at a company, um, we try to figure out like, what are the risks we're taking? Um, you know, so, and, and we're looking for things like, um, let's, talk about, uh, let's talk about SaaS lending. Because SaaS lending is a hot topic right now. Mm-hmm. So in, in, a, in a SaaS deal, you know, basically uh, Vista came out with this quote, um, you know, for, for SaaS revenue is better than first lien debt because you'd probably keep paying your AWS bill before you'd end up paying your interest payment because you need your AWS bill to even keep your company alive and your creditors would probably agree. You probably wouldn't pay your AWS bill if Amazon went bankrupt, if the provider of the software suddenly went out of business. And so we often spend our time thinking like, what is like the fallacy or what is the argument we're being given? And then what, is, what are we actually underwriting? Now it turns out SaaS businesses are generally good businesses to underwrite. They have sticky revenues, they have high margins, they at scale become a machine, you put a dollar in, you get a dollar back. And then we, we, so we, we try to figure out like, what is the risk we're actually taking? And then we say, well, what does this remind us of? Um, you know, and so in the case of Amazon third party sellers, it sounds kind of wonky, like you're selling, you're, you're, you're funding like potentially eBay sellers, but, but then you look at the track record, you look at the actual default rate and, and you say, you know, this is small business lending. What kind of default rates do we see in normal small business lending? Um, especially at those debt to income profiles and, and there's a lot of data you can find there. So then we take what is the comp in the market? And then we say, what is the first party data we're actually getting from this company? And do they match? You know, and Jeff Bezos has this wonderful quote of like, if the data and the story don't match, just stay still or like d- d- trust the story. Um, you know, we, we struggle when the story doesn't match the data that we're actually receiving. And then we want to have like an aha moment. Um, you know, why is it that um, a, like the risk we're taking is just so outsized? Uh, reverse factoring is a great example. So you can go to, um, let's imagine a large company like Uber. And, and, you know, this is sort of a, a, a random example that, that we obviously don't do. But you said, hey, Uber, your drivers are all owed money by you. Why don't we make your drivers alone secured against the payment you owe them? What you end up doing is you get paid, like you're taking the risk of the consumer who drives for Uber, but you're actually taking the credit risk of Uber itself. And it's definitely right. a spread. So we look for a lot of those like aha moments. Like what's an example of something that we can like earn a, a really good spread? Um, and then we want to understand how can we get it to scale? Um, and then also we want to make sure that if we're able to get a really good deal, how is that deal good for the company itself? Because you can have every legal agreement you want. And, and by the way, these loan agreements at scale get to like 500 pages between the loan service agreement, the SPV, the purchase and sale, the joinder, the, uh, uh, the legal opinions, the subordination agreements, the co It's crazy. Um, but, um, you can have, but, but if it's not a good deal for the company, you just don't want to be in it because it's, they're going to lose money on a unit economics basis. So they don't have a path to become unit economics profitable, et cetera. Um, and then once we believe all these different things, um, and every company after that's fairly bespoke in terms of what you have to originate, you're also looking for flow of funds. You want to make sure that you can control cash. It's very hard to commit fraud. You want to make sure that you can observe the fraud if it were to occur. Um, you know, in, in many cases, um, we actually apply for a loan for lending to a lending company to make sure that what they're telling us to tell the consumer, they're actually telling the consumer. We buy the product. You know, we do a lot of using the product itself. Um, you know, and then after that, we're usually calling former employees, former colleagues. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a really, really thorough underwrite because in credit, there's a lot less risk for, um, for losses. For the founder, it's often surprising. And, and by the way, most credit investors, what they'll do is they'll say, Oh, all credit investors are a pain, but we're really amazing and awesome. We're not going to do this to you. The reality is most credit investors give you a term sheet and then figure out what you do. Because my background is really in technology, the first job I ever had was in venture. Um, when we set a term sheet, like something better, someone better like have like had to lie, steal, or cheat for us to not close on that term sheet. 
but we spent a lot of time ensuring that. Um, so, so those are some of the hallmarks and trademarks that we're looking for when we find a deal is, what do we expect the market to actually be like? Does the data match up to the story? Is there an aha moment where what you're getting paid makes more sense than like the risk that you're taking? And how we to validate that in 90 different ways. So what's the pipeline look like for this? Because it sounds like there's a lot of very bespoke thinking for every single deal. Maybe at a level that isn't as common for technology, where there's a lot of pattern matching between companies. It, are you running through hundreds of deals a year? And you know, how many are you digging into? How many, how many checks are you writing a year with this type of product? Because it's the way you're describing it, and everyone does a lot of work on diligence. You know, not everyone, but a lot of the firms that put numbers up. Uh, but it sounds as though it's, it's so time-consuming that you probably can't do many cycles in a year or write many checks. It, it, it's a lot of saying no quickly when you know that a deal isn't going to be down the middle for, or, or, or doesn't have the potential for being down the middle. And it's a lot about that being that router, as I mentioned. So, and you know this. I mean, you say no to almost every deal you see, and it takes you know, one out of however many to actually get one closed. And so it, it, when you're in the no business, whether you're saying no to a cold email from some you know, knucklehead undergrad, or you're saying no to a startup founder who's really terrific, it's really important to say no the right way. You know, and so mm-hmm. for us, our way of saying no the right way is either explain exactly why we don't think, you know, we think the risk is wrong. So you know, a lot of companies um, think they're taking mitigating risks when actually they're taking compounding risks. If this happens or that happens, you lose the money. And we like deals that are mitigating, which is if this happens and that happens, you lose the money. So we like and statements mm-hmm. more than we like or statements. You know, other things like the reverse mortgage business that you mentioned, we say, look, we, we're just not going to be competitive. And I know nine people who can outbid us. Let us introduce right. you to those nine. Equipment leasing. You should go to Adelaide. They have it or Keystone. You know, mortgages. Right. Uh, you can go to Guggenheim or Security Benefit. You know, like there's all these different groups that you can go to. Consumer loans. Go to Victory Park. You know, um, whoever it is that does it really well. Um, so down the fairway for you. That's the question I want to hear. What's down the ferry? It's an asset you know other people aren't going to touch, so you can get a probably a higher rate on it. Yep, right? that, that a regulated body would have a hard time doing because there's not a lot of track record in the asset class. That okay. it would hit a return hurdle, which is sort of in the double-digit area range. Um, okay. That would have what we consider a two-times loss coverage ratio. So we take a base case of losses, and we have to see two times that at least before our first all loss of income would be hit. Where the asset okay. is self-liquidating, uh, which means that we're not relying on have to sell the asset after we own it. it. It should just produce cash flow, so it runs off. So we don't do things like collectibles or wine or art. Or yeah, anything what like a pain. Um, yeah. People get it, by the way. I, I just have I have bad taste. So like deciding if like wine is good or art is good. Like, I, I, that makes way, two of us. Yeah, we're well, wearing the same shirt today. That's right. That's right. My high school experience <laughs> would have been much better if I was better at that stuff. Um, right. You know, and so um, you know, can we put at least you know fifty to hundred million dollars out? You know, over some period of time, um, and then. Are we somehow in the flow of cash? And then is that their arbitrage of what is the risk that everyone, like what is this getting priced at and, and who's making a lot of money for us giving them the capital versus what is the, 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 the cost of capital that this should be if this is like a regular way asset that's one of our comps. It, it's, a the, wide, um, it's a wide bucket though. It's, it's not, how many deals are you trying to do a year, right? With a portfolio like this? And how many deals in a portfolio? Because I think the cadence sounds different than venture. Yeah, so um, we've taken the point of view that we have um, mostly uh, evergreen vehicles, um, which means that, you know, we, you know, have a, a pool, you know, we, we don't try to do a series of delayed draw funds where you have like 10 funds and you do the next fund, you do the next fund. We just have a portfolio, one big portfolio, really. Um, the, we, we try to do about eight deals a year. You know, if you think about that on the credit side, so we probably see well over a thousand, you know, we probably That's help. That's pretty good volume. Eight deals a year for the level of work you're doing. It's pretty good. Yeah, so, so the, the, the credit team, it's, you know, who are doing the day-to-day, not blocking tactic, the actual diligence, the execution, all that stuff. Um, although, of course, our, our finance and ops team is very involved in that, too. You know, it's, it's Will, Josh, Mike, Mark, Brian, and I. Six people. One of us mm-hmm. each year does two deals. You know, it's not the end. You know, so it's not actually a crazy right. amount. And by the way, some deals, we, they, years we do more. I mean, we could do up to 15 in a year, and we could do as few as four. Um, but I'd say eight to 10 is probably average. Tell me about your evergreen construct, because most, for folks listening, most GPs out there go out, they panhandle for money, whether it's easy or hard, they raise as much as they, you know, they're targeting to get if they can. They put it into a vehicle, they deploy it, they generate a return, and then they start over. And it's a new legal entity, it's a new process. Very often the same actors are funding the next, um, the next fund, but it's a, there is a period at the end of the sentence of that, vent- that venture, that fund, and then it starts over. 
An evergreen concept means you make money back and you're redeploying it into the next opportunity. Most LPs aren't okay with that. Most LPs aren't okay with that. So how did you guys land on an evergreen construct? So maybe it's easier and probably more appropriate for me to talk about different types of fund structures generally. Um, okay. and, and then, you know, um, hopefully the types of stuff we do will become uh, more elucidated through that. So as you mentioned, you know, most firms or a lot of firms um, have a series of funds and they're, you know, closed end delayed draw funds. I commit $100 million to your fund. You know, you take my money over a two to three year investment period. And then after the investment period, you start giving me the returns back over time. So during the investment period, you know, you're charging fees on what I gave you. Not, you know, in credit, it's actually usually what's called, not what's committed. In venture, it's usually what's committed. Um, and then like you, you get the income as it comes back. And then after the investment period, it's called, you know, the amortization period, which is like all the assets cycle off and you get whatever you want. In evergreen funds, you know, most evergreen funds really can't hold a liquid assets. And the reason is, you know, if, if there's like a redemption, so, so usually you go into a fund and let's take like a, a regular way, long, short equity hedge fund. You know, you, you commit, there might be like a, a, um, a minimum amount of time that you have to commit for, you can't redeem the next day, um, but they're liquid assets. And so you can redeem. Now, a lot of these funds will have gates because, you know, what happens during a recession or during a time when people lose liquidity is everyone needs to redeem at the same time. And if you have to sell out of your positions too aggressively, you could kill the, the market and hurt your own returns. So usually there's gates and they're like 25% per quarter, 10% per quarter. So eventually the fund has to wind down, but it doesn't have to wind down all at once. A lot of people who want to do illiquid assets in, a, uh, in an evergreen fund will use the same construct and they'll rely on their liquid assets to get people the money back. The thing that people often would get concerned by though is God forbid um, the easy stuff to sell, which is by the way, the performing stuff, because it's easy to sell. I mean, somebody wants it. The only thing you're left with at the end is bad assets. And so it then becomes a race to the door. Oh my God, there's redemptions. I better get out before I'm getting left with the crap. Um, you know, the, the way that um, we like encourage people to set these up is you have a more um, uh, mechanical redemption process. And you can do that, you know, all kinds of different ways. So, you know, in a peer to peer lending fund, what you might have is something called side pockets where you say, Hey, I have, uh, you know, a hundred different loans. Three of the loans are bad. So what I'll do is if somebody redeems, I side pocket, I have two capital accounts. I have a side pocket capital account, which is three loans, which are impaired and 97 different loans, um, that are, that are not impaired. So, you know, if you redeem, I give you 97 cents of the dollar back. And then whatever is impaired, if I get the money back, you get some back. And if you don't, you don't. It, you kind you of pro rata balancing it out for everybody. You could do the same thing with a liquid assets. So let's imagine you had some things like, let's imagine you had a book that was 50% liquid and 50% illiquid. Even if the 50% that are illiquid are performing, you can't get them the money back. And you don't, if your whole goal was to have a 50 50 split, you're going to screw it up if you get them all their money back. So what you would do is you'd say, look, I'm going to side pocket your capital account. I'm going to give you 50% of the dollar back immediately because I can. Um, and the rest you're going to get back as I sell it off. And, you know, it has a term if it's a liquid or some sort of format. And then you get the money back as the underlying deals come off. And that would be a way that you get away with doing an evergreen fund. Got it. And <clears throat> in these cases, are, are, are the evergreen fund construct you're describing, is that typically, it's all the money uh, called up front? Or is it one of those where it's a delayed draw? Because um, so, it seems like it would, go, it would pair up nicely with a called on day one. Yes. Yeah, so, so a lot of people, everyone would prefer that they get called immediately. You do the best you mm -hmm. can. Um, you know, I think the, the challenge is if you're doing a liquid investing, you call the capital all at once. Um, you're sitting on what's called cash drag. So there's, you know, let's imagine right. you have 50% of your assets earning 10% of your return and 50% are just sitting in cash. Um, you'll earn a five net back to investors and they'll ask you, why are you charging them fees on their cash? So it's right. reasonably important to have something to do with the money. Um, and, and there's firms that are hybrids. I mean, um, yeah, I, and, and the, on top of that, when you start to get to these bigger and bigger firms, whether it's, you know, um, a Fortress or an Avenue or a, or a Blackstone or any of these others, you end up getting um, a credit business. And within the credit business, there's many other businesses. And now I'm going to get over my skis because I don't know exactly how each of their individual funds work or all that other stuff. And, and I know that all the people at all those places, so nor do I want to speak too much about their business. But generally, what you end up finding is these firms are scaling is it say, oh, you want a litigation finance uh, strategy? We have a litigation fund. You want corporate credit? We got a corporate credit fund. You want a secured loan fund? We got a secured loan fund. And one of the reasons that's so hard for people in the tech world to understand where to go with their debt needs is like all these different firms are reasonably opaque. Um, and, it, and just like, um, you know, you could go, if somebody told you I have like a, a you know, 
a company that's doing financial services media, you and I would be like, oh, you talked to Howard Lindzen at Social Leverage. And if you had a company that was like a vertical SaaS company, you'd be like, oh, go talk to Mike Brown at, um, at Bowery. Like all those nuance. Can you imagine trying to get a credit investor to know all that stuff? Mm. Yeah, it just takes years and years of learning which firms do what. Got it. Okay. Now, how much of your process for evaluating deals and underwriting is automated versus manual? Sounds like at the clip you guys are doing with your team construct, it's a hands-on, you know, typical kind of finance partnership construct. Yeah, we're, right we're you know, we use technical tools, um, but they're not like we're not using like AIML tools. We're not reinventing the wheel. Um, you know, we're pretty hands-on and manual. Now we rely on platforms. So like we love financing stuff on Amazon because you can use Amazon data and you can plug into the Amazon data. And, and so, and we fund companies that use quite a bit of um, technology. We've never resonated much with companies that win because their algorithms that great. We often resonate more with companies that have better data um, because algorithms are kind of black boxy and have short half-lives. Data often is um, kind of obvious once everyone finds out about it. Um, it's just maybe hard to get. So you know, maybe one of the sweet spots we look for is companies that find obviously better data than anyone else has, um, that they just have a unique way of getting. An embedded financial services business could be an example of that. You know, Carta could lend money to all the people who have their, you know, stocks uh, or their, their shares with Carta or custody by Carta or whatever, because they have information on you that like Morgan Stanley's private bank wouldn't have. The right. reason people are seeing, say, uh, seeing buy now, pay later become so exciting right now, and especially international buy now, pay later, is because there's an incredibly wonderful data set that you can collect. You know, the, the, the basic premise or, or the basic plan A, and, and I don't want to go into the secret sauce of some of the other companies, but the thing they all do is they basically advertise to consumers and they say, hey, great, good news. We're going to give you a loan. And these are usually in countries where there's not really FICO or there's very little credit card penetration. There's people who have no credit. So everyone applies. But if you make everyone a loan and you do no underwriting, it turns out you're going to have a very high default rate. So you make very, very small loans and you see high default rates. So then you make a second loan. You see a lower default rate, but only to the people who paid you back the first time. And you make a third loan to the people who paid you back a second time. You're making them a bigger loan and so on and so on and so on. So what you're left with is a book of 5% brand new borrowers and a book of 95% people who you and only you know are good borrowers because you train them to be good borrowers. Those are examples of very obvious data sets that we love because they're hard to get access to. But then once you have them, you have this huge advantage. Love it. Now, you, you also do... Uh a venture business. We've alluded to it a few times in the show. Will you give a quick overview of the VC side of the house? Yeah. So um, it, it with a couple other partners, um, we started a firm called Crossbeam. Um, and Crossbeam uh, does early stage venture capital, right? It's half a million to two and a half million dollar checks um, into primarily seed stage startups. There's really four areas that we like the most. One is pure fintech. Having talked to me for this period of time, you can imagine why fintech might be interesting and exciting to us especially anything that's a financing business. We find a lot of joy and pleasure in the fact that most VCs couldn't tell you why some lending companies are valuable and some are not. And it turns out that it's because most lending companies aren't very similar to software companies. And, soft, and you have to back up and try to figure out like, why are software companies so valuable? Why do they trade at high multiples? Um, you know, we often joke that people have been doing, doing lending to SaaS companies for a long time because the multiples on SaaS revenues are so high that if you said, what's expensive equity, or sorry, cheap equity, you say expensive debt. We're like now in that gray area um, where the two asset classes are emerging. So, so why are so software companies valuable? Well, one reason, they don't take a lot of capital to start or grow, and they grow fast. The second reason is they have high margins. The third reason is they usually have barriers to entry. The fourth reason, they're usually in growing markets. If you go down this list, these companies are not worth a lot because someone one day said the word software. They're valuable because they're actually good cash flowing businesses that are structurally sound. Let's take a lending company. A lending company is kind of garbage for the most part. You know, you have a company that guzzles a ton of equity because it needs to put equity underneath this debt. If you make a bad loan, you lose your equity. You got to raise more. So it's dilutive. You're selling capital, which is, you know, a commoditized product. Um, by the way, if, if somebody made you a, a mortgage loan, like it was Chase, you wouldn't say, wow, Chase is so amazing. I shouldn't shop my next loan. You'd shop it again for your next house. See, this commoditized product and, and it's ex extremely expensive CAC because you're selling expensive products to people. It's very highly competed. Every once in a while, you find a software company that actually, or a lending company that actually acts like a software business. And that might be because, or have some components of a software business. That might be because it has proprietary data where it can lend to people that no one else can lend to. So it can lend at higher rates than they ought to and have very low default rates and earn a high margin. 
And because they're the only ones who can lend to them, they have repeat business. Um, you might find a company like a firm that integrates at the POS of these e-commerce businesses or the shopping cart page where they have the dynamics of a SaaS company where they're not getting paid for the consumer risk they're taking. They get paid by expanding AOV or lowering and lowering CAC. So we really like financing business because we have a point of view on what makes some valuable and whatnot. And we think of a competitive edge there. The third place that we really spend our time on is what we call the re-emerging middle class, largely driven by the decay of network effects and the expansion of platform economies. Let me explain what that means. You know, there's the meme of, you know, does tech take away jobs or does it create new jobs? I'd imagine most people listening probably assume that hopefully it'll create new jobs. I don't think it's that um, one, you know, I, I don't have a lot of wonder of what those new jobs are. You know, it's the people who sell on Amazon. It's the people who um, produce content on, on YouTube. It is the, um, you know, people who make content on Instagram or uh, Etsy or Shopify or whatever it might be. So the small jobs of tomorrow, or, the, or excuse me, um, the small businesses of tomorrow live in these platform economies, not on Main Street. But what's really amazing is that these people making are starting to make more money than they ever did for two reasons. One is antitrust. You know, Amazon has to prove that it's a highway for small business, not a monopoly. The second reason is the decay of network effects, largely driven by the fact that social media is no longer social. So when you watch YouTube um, or you watch Twitter, it's people like you making the content, not your friends, not the average individual. And thank God, my friends are pretty boring. Like YouTube has incredible <laughs> content. Um, and the reason it has such good content is because it's better and YouTube cares about promoting good content, but also YouTubers make money. Instagrammers don't make money. And so that's why on Instagram, everything's a meme. Memes are really cheap to produce. You can't get make a video on Instagram. Eventually, Instagram will help people start to make money because it has to allow people to make better content because they think we're all memed out already. Um, and so we're watching these social media companies just become media companies. And I bet you, your life is no better if I'm using YouTube than if I'm not because you're not watching me. You're watching professionals. As this shift happens, as these network effects matter less, the platforms are going to have to share more of these economics, just like Instagram is going to have to share the economics with Instagrammers. And we're seeing that happen on all these different platforms. Those are the main places we invest. And so you're seeing that outside of social media? What other sectors are you seeing kind of this transition happening? So Amazon's a terrific example. Um, you know, Amazon, it used to be that Amazon used to sell stuff to us. And then when we saw, and they saw something selling well on Amazon, um, they would try to comp- come up with their own competing product. And then one day they realized they just can't compete with the third party sellers. The third party seller, it turns out like free markets are pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if you think of like what is, um, Amazon, it's like the, I'm trying to figure out like an appropriate way to say this. It's the state sponsored entity. You know, they sell you their stuff and it's their brand and, you know, they, they squish down the little guy. And then they realize one day, like, oh, capitalism actually worked pretty well. Like, let's just create a free market. And the free market ended up outperforming Amazon and they ended up making higher margins on it. And you could actually become the everything store. Um, and so that's an example where it used to be that people wouldn't want to start businesses on Amazon because it's really scary to, to, it's the best place to start a business. You get common review moats, you have variable costs, you have high margins because you don't spend money on ads. It's actually kind of a wonderful place to be. So that would be another example. Okay. So for the entrepreneurs listening, which entrepreneurs should reach out to you? What's that very high level tear sheet for something that's a fit for you as an investment? So it's an early stage business. It's either commercializing jobs that are starting to emerge or helping create new jobs that have never existed before. It's any company that sells to cons- uh, a consumer finance app or sells into financial services businesses, any company that has a balance sheet or is capital, um, has a lot of capital consumption, but still can be equity efficient. Capital efficient and equity efficient are two different things that I don't think people really appreciate. Anything that's like related to a financing business. It's almost like any business where capital is part of the product. Yeah, that would be a great way to frame it. Um, and okay. then, you know, we're, we're spending like an example of a new type of job um, can really range. I mean, YGG is like a fascinating business. You know, YGG is a guild that basically buys axes on behalf of players in the Ven- Venezuela or the Philippines. They train these players and then they rent them or they sell them to other people who want, you know, more evolved players. Um, there's hundreds of thousands of people in some of these countries being lifted out of poverty because they're training these players. Um, you know, Roblox is another example of an ecosystem where kids are making games and making real money out of them. So these are examples where the platforms that were built, you know, 15, 20 years ago or less realized we have to share economics with the people on our platforms. The companies built in the last two to three years, they started that way. They just knew that was the right thing to do. And they took this like government state sponsored, maybe socialist approach to a platform and said, no, no, no we should be capitalists. And, and, and I'd say like Axie Infinity is like a, a capital first, capitalist first approach to building a platform. 
And these other platforms that have historically been very large in the FANG stock are trying to race towards that. So why are these two businesses synergistic? Totally. Underhand pitch. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, we often joke that um, our, you know, our credit business, uh, the credit business I'm involved in, CoVenture, is like the front door to capital. Um, it is. It lets us swing above our, or, or um, you know, punch above our weight class. It lets us get into rooms that we might not other be able, be able to get into. You know, the world um, has a hard time finding focus on one more seed fund. But what we do in credit ends up being fairly differentiated. We're usually financing asset classes that nobody else is financing, and we're doing it with pretty big checks. So we built a very institutional approach to investing, and we have scale and access and connections that most people don't have. Um, and in venture, venture is like where we learn the future. And it's the front door to the companies. You know, we see hundreds and hundreds of deals, thousands of deals per year um, of, of all kinds. You know, whereas something like um, investing in yield generating assets in the metaverse are not necessarily institutionally credit worthy products yet. Um, it sure helps that we have our credit business so that when they are, we have a compelling pitch to these folks to say, look, when you're ready for a serious amount of capital, we can help you figure that out either by being it ourselves um, or, or showing you the right door. Um, and in credit, we would never understand what was going on there, what was going on in Roblox, what was going on in YouTube, what was going on in Instagram, TikTok, et cetera, if we didn't have our venture business where we could you know, be on the bleeding edge. Um, and then it's, always, it's not always, hey, we can provide the capital to every company, but often we'll do one deal that teaches about another deal that teaches about another deal. You know, um, Borthwick at, um, at Betaworks always has this quote of like, he's trying to build a rainforest. We're almost trying to build our own little rainforest. Uh, you know, it turns out like, being really close to Clearco, which funds tons and tons of ad spend per year, financing a bunch of companies with ad-supported business models is actually a pretty good thing to partner with. So all those different ways that we can help our different companies work together um, creates this ecosystem where the two businesses work hand in hand. That's fantastic. That is unique, being able to plug into um, the more institutional capital sources. I think most VCs are a layer or two removed from that. And if, they, if they're not removed from it, they're not, it doesn't seem like they're usually tapping into it too much for their portfolio. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, it just comes down to also, how do you think strategically about capitalizing your business? Like when you want to do an acquisition, why are you funding all with equity all the time? You know, I remember there's one business where, um, without saying what the company is, but they, they launch a bunch of retail storefronts. And you know, they have a Topco, and the Topco raises equity. And the Topco also owns all these different businesses they own. The Tribeca store they own, the you know, Upper West Side store, they own the SF store. And they had this wonderful pitch. They said, well, gosh, you know, we can get our stores to profitability within six months. And I was like, that's awesome. Why don't, as soon as they become profitable, you drop it down into a subsidiary and then provide a, a loan to that company because you have EBITDA and then take that loan back up to the Topco and now you've recapitalized your Topco um, instead of raising more equity. By the way, you now also isolate the risk of every single one of your stores so that if one goes bad, it doesn't hurt or suck out cash from the others. And your loans are all at the subsidiary level so the loan can never go back up to your Topco. Um, it's not like any lender would, who's listening would be like, yeah, that's not that smart or hard or anything. I just don't know why it doesn't happen in venture. Um, and, and so that's not all we do, but it, you know, it's part of it. So this is an interesting business. It's a unique model in the sense that you've got kind of this credit venture hybrid. You don't see a lot of that in the venture ecosystem. How did you build this business? How did you go from kind of college student tinkering around to um, person sitting on kind of a a two-product strategy, um, outwriting pretty big checks and having impact. Sure. So, you know, I mean, to take it even a step back or, or, or further back, you know, the, the first chart we did um, kind of like uh, really punched us uh, in the face. Um, you know, I remember I, I had this idea for a startup. Um, you know, we we moved it down to New York, and I remember the, the very first time uh, someone I was moving down to New York, someone was like, "Well, New York's really expensive." I said, "I don't agree." You know, I found a Two bedroom, two bath for nine hundred dollars a month, and that's that tells you a lot about the street that I was on. Um, and I was living in the Bronx, um, and and it was you know. By the way, I still have lots of lots and lots of love for the Bronx. There are actually a lot of things about that neighborhood that I, I wish actually were in my current neighborhood. Um, but it was a little bit tricky, um, you know. And there were not, you know you didn't really want to go home after after dark, um, and and the startup didn't work. Um, and it was a really really painful experience. And I was new to the East Coast. Um, I didn't really have a lot of friends to lean on. Um, and so I ended up re really like annoyingly uh, getting uh, this this job. I thought annoyingly, it ended up being a blessing at this business called Chloe Softer Fruit Company because uh, I needed to make money because I was like, you know, I was kind of in between figuring out my living situation. 
Um, and I needed to start um, passing out flyers. So if you ever see someone passing out flyers, uh, you should be nice to them because that used to be me. And I was on 17th and Broadway. And Chloe Softer Fruit, just to run a quick commercial here, I mean, it's a really amazing product. You know, it's actually made of only three <laughs> ingredients. It's fruit, water, and a touch of organic cane sugar. It's only 80 calories and actually got less sugar than a, a little bottle of coconut water. I um, mean, the only reason they add sugar, by the way, is to bring down the freezing temperature so it comes out of the machine in a fluffy format that feels like soft serve um, or, or frozen yogurt. But it's, it's soft serve fruit. There's no dairy or anything like that. And so I spent a lot of my time. And actually, the, the reason Chloe's ended up being such an incredible experience for me, apart from the fact that you know, I had an employee discount. I maintain that employee discount to this day where I get 50% off on my Chloe's and, and I, I think the crunchy salty is the best thing they sell. Oh, uh, it's actually Michael Sloan, one of the founders of Chloe's was our first investor and our first believer. And he encouraged me to go back to school. He helped me go back to school. Um, and, uh, you know, and to this day, you know, co-venture wouldn't be here w- without Michael. Um, and when I got back to school, I was determined that I really wanted to be in venture capital um, because I thought, gosh, you know, giving people money would be so much better than asking for money. Uh, little did I know that to be a venture capitalist, you have to go around asking for money nonstop, which was a totally terrible uh, way to think about it. Um, and, and so I was just so determined to build top of funnel so I could go raise the money. So starting my sophomore year, I go to every career event, every lecture series, everything at Cornell just to meet alumni. And if I met them, my job was to get their business card and to remember what they wore so that I would go to that or some you know, memorable thing, something that they said, some line that they men- mentioned to rem- make sure they knew that I actually met them in person. And I would build this list and then I had a, an update sheet where every month or every quarter I would send out four quadrants. You know, this is what I'm up to. This is what it hasn't worked that I'm trying to fix. These are my, um, this is what I'm going to do by next quarter. And these are three or four specific asks. Um, and I just, and, and there's no unsubscribe button. So this alumni base constantly actually knew how to help me. It was like this specific ask thing I, I used to mention. And this is actually going to be a funny comment. Uh, it'll tie back to the very beginning of the cold emails. So then what uh, I got together with a friend of mine named Brian Harwood, who actually now works at our firm. Um, and Brian and I started doing these research reports. We would do research reports on like elderly care or travel or marketplace infrastructure, all the stuff that most undergrads are spending their weekends doing. Um, and what I would do is I'd then call the corp dev offices of companies in the elderly care space or the travel space or wherever, because corp dev officers were so much easier to cold email and get in touch with than VCs because VCs have such high call volume. So, and, and then what I'd do is I'd email, um, VCs cold. Saying, you know, and I'd guess at their emails, first, uh, first letter, then last name, first name at domain, whatever. Hi, my name's Ali. You know, I, uh, I put together this research report about an industry. Two of your portfolio companies are in it. I'd love to talk to you for 15 minutes and tell you about my findings. And I'd say like one out of 50 responded and I'd get it and I'd get a meeting. And my meeting was like important. I'd spend those 15 minutes, explain my thesis and explain my thesis for their specific companies. And then offer them, do you want to meet two companies that may buy your portfolio companies? So it went from a, hey, how do I become a VC conversation to how do I help you so that you remember me? And then what I do after a while, I started to meet like a concentrated amount of VCs in the travel space or the marketplace space. And I say, hey, do you guys want to meet each other? Because you do the same thing. And it was like two hot shots and then me in the middle. Um, it might have been actually one of the, re- I can't remember that time at Thatcher, but it was something like that. Um, and so I would just do this over and over and over again until I had critical mass of VCs that I knew. And then I would, and then I'd help them enough times where I could finally make an ask. And I always used to think I had to help someone two to three times before they, I can ask them to help me. And instead of saying, Hey, do you know anyone who might be able to invest in my VC fund? I would say this, that I have no track record for and that nobody should give me a capital for. And so what I would do is I'd go to their LinkedIn and I'd break down every single person they knew who I thought was interesting. And I'd say, here's all the family offices, you know, here's all the VCs, you know, here's all the institutional, whatever. And then I'd write them five affordable emails with the specific name of the person I wanted to meet. Cause if I said, Hey, Mark, you know, What's an investor that you know? You're not going to introduce me to your best contact, even though we're friends. You'll introduce me to the person you just talked to that's convenient, that you know well, not your best person, because now you're putting an ask on them. If I put their name in that email, it's very easy to forward it. I don't know. I just asked. Like, let me feel free to say no. And then nobody would say no, because I was a kid, and I put their name in, and I showed the reason I wanted to meet with them. And I started to get such a critical mass in my network that people started making intros to me faster than I could ask for intros, and then the flywheel just started. And so today, you know, we've, you know, raised capital for from hundreds of people. Um, you know, and, and I always joke, like, if you have an office between 60 and 61st in Madison, like, you're probably an LP of, of some vehicle that we have. Um, and we just worked really, really hard to build social densities within certain groups of people, build a really high top of funnel, and not ask for capital within until we had given someone three or four favors, and until we had known them for a year. And that was how we sort of launched onto the scene of getting deal flow, knowing VCs, and getting access to capital. 
Now you've got these relationships, you've been building it for a long time. Um, what do you think is kind of your secret sauce for maintaining and strengthening LP relationships going forward? So um, it's constantly providing services, including investing the capital. It's good quarterly reports and explain our thesis and, and what we're thinking about doing. It's offering co-invests. It's um, you know doing quarterly calls or biannual calls. It's the events. It's the trainings. Um, and a lot of what people are looking for is not just that you made the money, but how you made the money. Um, if you make money for somebody and your reporting is bad and nobody knows that you made the money, it doesn't help anybody. Um, if you're not giving someone a preview, you know, like we we always joke that you know if I was giving advice to a fund manager, I would say it takes three years to raise your first fund. And it also takes about two years to raise your second fund. And even though you can say that you're in the market for six months, you're in the market now. I actually even tell people, um, they started raising money the minute they were in high school. Um, so I, I, and it's because, you know, if the person that you have a lot of data points with who expresses themselves as the smartest person you know, asks for money, you would already just give them the money because you already knew them, you already impressed with them, all the other things. There's a, a woman I went to high school with who I used to use her pencil to take tests. I called it the elder pencil, like the elder wand from Harry Potter. Because she was so dang smart that like, I just wanted like the osmosis of her smartness. Mm. If that woman ever asks us for money, it's a blank check for me, like whatever she wants. Um, and so, you know, there's, um, so, so I think a lot of it is have a good product, do what you said you were going to do, explain it on a quarterly basis in a, in a, in a functional high fidelity format. Um, make sure that when you do a deal, you have a lot of rationale for the deal. Getting good returns doesn't matter if you got the returns for a reason you didn't expect. You know, so we talk a lot about our quality of returns. Like, did our thesis play out or did it not play out? Um, and then we also have to have a point of view on the world. Um, where is venture now? Where are markets? How do we think about valuations? And actually, like, sounding like you have an original thought um, as opposed to just trying to like mimic something that you saw or read five or six years ago. Um, and then when you're out raising your next fund, like, as soon as we, you know, you close a fund, you should say, hey, we're going to raise another fund in two years. I'm going to spend the next eight quarters convincing you that what I said I was going to do, I did. And then when you go to your you know, budget meeting in November to figure out your 2022 budget or in November, you know, November of next year for your 2023 budget, you already pencil us in. You already know that we're coming back to the market. So a lot of it is just understanding the game, the timing, making sure they can do their ODD, ODD the right way, and also create a lot of positive references and referrals. You know, I know there's certain groups, former partners at a certain firm or C-suite executives at a company that IPO'd, where we might have six investors in that cohort. Getting the seventh is really easy because they have so much social validation around them. Th those are some of, the, some of the ways, I guess. And, and we're just very programmatic and formulaic about it. Okay. Let me give you one more layup because I know it's something you probably want to talk about. You alluded to it before that the venture market has changed a lot. How do you see those changes? What do you think the required responses from VCs in order to be relevant and continue to be successful? So, I mean, the venture market's changed a lot. Um, let's talk about valuations first. Um, you know, so valuations are higher now. Um, and I was kind of alluding to the fact that valuations in all asset classes are higher. In credit, the, the version of higher is that yields are lower. Um, in, in venture or equity, you know, it's because the valuations are higher. Valuations probably should be higher now. Than they used to be. I don't, I'm not, by the way, proposing that they should be as high as they are, but they certainly should be higher. Why? Well, it used to be that you were taking a lot of technical risk or product market fit risk or mark business model risk. You're not really taking technical risk anymore and you're not taking business model risk anymore. You know, every business is either, a, you know, a, a SaaS company or a marketplace. Um, every technology you're kind of launching, you're using nine other technologies. Um, so it's really like a product market fit risk. Um, which is a lot riskier than before. The second is the founders have usually founded a company before or were like the unsung hero of another company. You know, it used to be that you were backing these kids or even adults who were spinning out of a big company who had never been a part of a startup or, or, or product team before. I mean, I, you, maybe your own investing is different, but I bet you it's not. I bet you most of the people you're backing now are just people you've known for a long time. They started a company and you're here for the second ride. And they're, it's not their first time building the sales team. They're not hiring a bad CFO. They're not calling people CFOs when they're really controllers. You know, they're, they actually know how to run a business. So you're taking less team risk. The internet's bigger now. You know, it used to be that we were all really successful if we built, you know, back to a billion dollar company. A billion dollar company is great, but it's not a $10 billion company. That's the new sort of thing that everyone's trying to hit. Um, you know, and, 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 uh, the, the speed that they get to be in a billion dollars is so fast now. It's for two reasons. The first is the buyers of enterprise software products are more used to buying enterprise software products. 
and the teams built to sell enterprise software products or SaaS products, whatever, are more robust. Like it's a, it's a founder who's already built nine of these teams. They know how to train their SDRs or inside sales or account managers, how to pursue negative churn. Like just the tools we have to build those teams are much better. And in consumer, social media or now media has become way more data driven. It used to be you put a TV ad up and then you hope Nielsen measures enough people to tell you how many people watch your ad. That is insane. You know, now we actually have like really, really good analytical data to be data driven about how we attract consumers. And you can get a lot of consumers really fast. I mean, you can get a million users in the time it used to take people to get 20,000 users. I mean, you'll remember this. It used to be a big deal when someone had 20,000 users. Now you'd be like, you know, what do you do? Like you spend like three months building this product. Um, right. That's your sign up list. So that's, so, that's your pre launch sign up list. Right. Yeah. So, so why would I ever um, assume that valuation should be the same now as before? Um, and then on top of that, VCs have gotten way better at knowing about a market before the company comes in. You know, I think the, the sloppy way to do VC is to say, holy crap, you know, m- deals move so fast now, I should just do less diligence. The smart way, you kind of have to be a little thesis oriented. Um, you know, you have to know a lot about a space so that by the time the company comes to you, you already have a point of view or do pre-work or whatever it might be. Because yes, the company is going to get its round done in the next three to four weeks. You have to be ready, um, or at least a lot of the hot deals. Preempting is a lot harder than it used to be. Um, the rounds are more fluid. I mean, the other things that we're seeing is everything's a double round. You know, the, the valuations have been moving so fast that everyone's trying to figure out price discovery. So as soon as the round gets done and the price is validated, then there's another round that happens at 20% premium, like half the time, um, if the company's willing to allow it. So a lot of these things are starting to change or mature. Um, that just didn't used to exist as much before. It's great. Thank you for your insight. Appreciate you being on. It was great to catch up. Thank you. I, I you know, am really excited to be here. And uh, hopefully we can find more to do together. Um, it would be an honor. I'd love that. I'd love that. One of my favorite things about doing this podcast is I continue to learn so much from the people I'm chatting with. Uh, today was no exception. Thank you to Ollie for being on the show. Here's where I ask you to help out the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at MPD. You can give me a like, a five-star review, all things that help people discover this content. If you don't mind doing any of that, we appreciate it. Hope everyone's having a good week. Thank you.